From Irmo to Istanbul, from Taipei to Tunisia, we tell the stories of the people who make the world of international disputes turn. We give glimpses into their lives and give insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry from around the globe. Simply put, and without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Hello, and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal. I'm your host, Chris Campbell. And listeners, look, I know I say this literally every single episode, but I cannot stress to you enough how action-packed and fast-paced today's episode is about to be. My only pre-announcement? Listen, we're making great progress on our goal to pass 30,000 downloads on our primary podcasting platform. But if you haven't already, please, please, please leave us a five-star review with your comments on the show and share the show with a friend or colleague, perhaps on LinkedIn. It really does help others find it. Two words to describe today's guest. Alexander Faces ICC. Okay, that was three words, and it was less the description and more just his name. But you get the gist. This week's episode, we had none other than Alex Fazes himself in the studio for what was an engaging, thought-provoking, and in my view, funny conversation. You also get to find out which Hogwarts house we're both in. Just aside, if you've been involved with ICC arbitration over the past decade plus, or really with the broader international arbitration community, you'll have come across Alex, who serves as the Secretary General for the ICC International Court of Arbitration. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation, so let's just jump right into it. I think you're really gonna enjoy this conversation. So, sit back, grab a relaxing beverage, and enjoy my conversation with Alex Faces, and we'll see you on the other side of the show. Hello, and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Listeners, welcome back to season five. It's so great to be here with you today. We've got a very special guest um, known for his work throughout the international arbitration community, as we will have just talked about in the intro and the read-in, and my fellow bald brother, Alex Fazes. Alex, welcome to the show. Chris, so good to be here. Great. Thanks for being here, Alex. And look, we're going to start off nice and easy with the questions we ask all of our guests here at Tales of the Tribunal. Who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? Well, who I am, I'm not really sure I'm the best person, best suited person to answer that, but maybe we can leave that for later. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm Alex, uh, uh, as, as most people call me, Chris. Um, I'm Greek Cypriot, which means that. Um, I hold a passport of the Republic of Cyprus, but I was born and raised actually in Athens, Greece, um, where I actually did all my studies, where I needed family still there. Um, I'm Grecian, therefore, so someone who comes from the wider Hellenic world. Um, I uh, fell in love with law early on. In fact, I wasn't really sure what it is that I wanted to study, so I kind of like thought, well, I'll, I'll try law and I'll figure it out. Eventually I did. I fell in love with conflicts and through that international litigation and through that wider dispute resolution, then ultimately arbitration. And again, quite luckily, I was exposed to that rather early on in my career. I was given 
a couple of good breaks by people who believed in me. And then bit by bit, I made uh, uh, a timid or discreet entry into this field. And uh, then ultimately, you know, found my, found my way to Paris and then uh, and the International Court of Arbitration. Absolutely. Well, look, um, you have very neatly, sir, sort of bundled together, you know, some years and decades of, of, of life. So we're going to rewind on that a little bit. Um, sure. So so you mentioned that, you know, you were considering a few different things. And you ended up choosing law and that's where you are. Um, one can imagine, uh, I guess, a multiverse where I don't know there's DJ Fazus or, you know, or, you know, something like that. What were some of the other things that you were thinking about instead of law? Well, I don't know that DJing was part of it, although I love singing. And I was also a part-time, very, very amateur actor um, in, in Shakespearean plays. But I never really took that uh, uh, as, as a serious, ever as a serious option, although one never really knows. I was enamored, and I still am, with history. Um, and I do believe that history, like law, teaches you a lot about the future, the present and the future. So both offer a system of thought that is sort of like a navigation um, tool. Uh, and so I wouldn't, I don't think that the way that I think of as a person today, both professionally and personally, would actually have been the same had I not really uh, fallen in love with both history and law. Uh, my, I think my original love, Chris, was journalism. I um, had an uncle who was a field reporter for the Associated Press around the Middle East. And I remember whenever he would visit or we would visit as kids, you know, hearing the stories about, you know, going into Kurdistan and interviewing uh, the rebels or, you know, being in Amman, Jordan uh, during the um, during the Persian Gulf and a number of other things were really, you know, fascinating stories and being able to report the facts and live that life of adventure, something that really I found very intriguing. But then ultimately I settled for something a little bit more calm, or so I think, um, <laughs> international arbitration law. Right, 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 right. No, I mean, and, and so let's go with that last point then. Um, so, so you would say then that it was maybe some of the influences of a family that were in international reporting that maybe gave you an interest in the international. And so was it, was it that thread that pulled you into international law or was there something more specific? I always felt that, at least in my case, that our professional choices really stem from, from the core, uh, or so it should be if one wants to be happy. Um, and so I, you know, again, the fact that I come from a mixed family, a family that has roots in multiple countries and spreads across multiple countries even today, um, the fact that, you know, I grew up speaking Greek and English and French and, um, you know, ultimately I, I had very good teachers at university that kind of like opened up that door of, in the beginning, public international law and then private international law and so forth. I kind of like felt that there is this, well, the moment rather that I realized that there's this wider system of laws and rules that transcend multiple jurisdictions or go across different jurisdictions. And, that as a lawyer, you could actually get to practice in it. I just found that so, so intriguing. And I know that and probably many other of your guests, Chris, have um, spoken on this same point that I'm about to. I know that all of this actually sounds quite mesmerizing or glossy and like very bling. You, as well as I know that that is not the case. It's not that, you know, you live on a plane and you're treated to wonderful food and drink. 
there is something utterly um, unattractive in this in this lifestyle because it's quite it can be quite unforgiving and one needs to be very careful. But there's so much beauty in international dispute resolution and international business law uh, that I'm, I'm, I really consider myself to be fortunate to be part of it and to be practicing. No, I, I think that that's well said, and you know, I, especially that point of. I have friends, whether they be friends from back home or folks from other parts of the industry that will have, you know, oh, in-house litigator jumping all over the globe. And they might know that I'm traveling a bunch. and They have this idea that it's maybe James Bond-esque. OK, maybe that's too much. But, you know, international travel. Lifestyle. I don't think your listeners, I don't think your listeners know. Well, now they would know who James Bond is, of course. But, yeah, <laughs> choose another actor. Choose another seller. Katy Perry. Well, Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Some sort of almost quasi celebrity lifestyle. And the reality is, no, it's hard on the body. It's hard on the mind. Um, and uh, and it's just it's a difficult lifestyle to live. But I think it's a tough choice. Other, it is a tough choice. Work, and I think, right. Well, I mean, that this uh, that's the, the very basic condition. If you do not enjoy it, you should just not do it. And I think that just applies across the board and so many other things, particularly professions. But to what you just said, I think it's something it's, it's sort of like a decision that affects others so it needs to be something that those who you choose or you want to have around you endorse that decision or at least the very least learn to live with it you see because it it, it can be taxing it, it may not be easy not to see your close ones for a month or a month and a half just because you know you have a long hearing a three-week hearing at the other side of the world and then you actually have to take time to prepare for that and you need to be gone for a very long period of time or when you have to do business development um, on, on, a, on, a, on a completely different continent or, you know, in your case, when I don't know, when you have to advise your company when you're building a new plant or when you have to decommission. So um, those are not necessarily the easiest conditions to uh, envisage sort of like a very linear life. But I think that's also what makes it rather attractive. No, and, and look, I think that's a great segue into some um, some other questions that I had. Um, about this world that we inhabit of international dispute resolution. When you're talking to to the muggles of, of, of maybe those not in international arbitration or even in law, how do you describe to them what it is that you do um, and have done day to day? Well, may I just turn back to you with a question before I answer yours, of course, but why did you use that term muggles? I mean, is this something that you came up with? Is that something somebody told you? Or is it because you really feel it is a little bit like that? The world of wizards and muggles. Well, look, I, I was trying to be like one of the the trendy cool kids and using a, a sci-fi term in a non-sci-fi context. But yeah, I mean, it does sort of feel like that sometimes, where yeah. the world is just sort of completely un unseen to those that aren't in it. I I ask because it's kind of like how I I, I made that analogy some years ago to uh, one of my nieces, um, who as she was sort of like exploring you know what route to take with uh, towards you know finishing school and going into university she, she wanted to know more about the field of law and the kind of work that i do and that that's how i started i said in a way then what i do or what we do in international arbitration is niche it's really perched somewhere within legal practice but it's not necessarily known to everybody else and Sometimes it's not that it's apocryphal or that we want to hide it from anyone. It's just not practiced by a lot of people, although it does have a significance. So 
It's very hard to explain it. I think, uh, especially so since, you know, my work currently is institutional in nature. So I'm not really representing clients. I'm not an arbitrator, so I don't decide matters in that way. Um, so even in that context, to explain to someone who is not in arbitration and who's not a lawyer, um, what it is that the International Court of Arbitration does can be quite, quite difficult. So, I mean, depending on how much time I have and um, the interest of the person asking, it would be, uh, well, you know, I help parties um, resolve disputes, commercial disputes. Uh, I, uh, you know, I help lawyers, um, uh, you know, make, make the right choices or I assist decision makers in, in on how to navigate commercial, complex commercial matters. Then somebody might actually throw the word arbitration. Um, and then the funniest thing I think that's happened to me, and that's happened a couple of times, is that once I've explained that to some, especially in social functions, and um, that person is going to introduce me to somebody else, and they'll say, well, this is Alex, and he's the, he's the Secretary General of the United Nations. That's happened a couple as, of times. As you do, right? As you do. Or, or the EU, if that position ever existed. So I, I get that, too. Yeah. Yeah, you know, some a lot of the times, if, especially if it's at a social function, it'll be that someone watched an episode of Suits or, you know, um, some other legal drama where they've heard of this this mystical dark art called arbitration. Right, um, right, 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 right. Well, sometimes you're actually negatively, well, not negatively, you're, you're surprised in a way because sometimes people know about it more than you. And I think that happens a little bit in Europe, perhaps more than elsewhere, and specifically in France, but not only. But, you know, people are aware of the, uh, of the of the Tapi case, they're aware of a few other things. Um, so, and you know, this, this the whole discussion with regard to investor state uh, dispute settlement um, um, is is something that still, on occasion, uh, appears on on mainstream media. So, I think those who do read papers or who listen to podcasts and radio shows um, will will know what it is, uh, or will have a, a sense of what it is. Yeah. And well, and look, this is um, uh, maybe another good sort of lead into another question that is, you know, sometimes when you're in those conversations, someone will just kind of offhandedly or flippantly say it, and maybe they don't mean it to be quite as flip. But what they will say is that arbitration is just is just private court um, and implying that it's the same as litigation or there's not really any meaningful distinction. I wonder when you hear someone say something like that, does any particular response come to mind or or how do, you, how do you sort of draw the distinguishments uh, to them? Yeah, it, very good question. I think context always changes that because you can be given that answer in very different contexts. But I never really believed that arbitration is just, you know, sort of like the imprint of litigation on a different type of paper. It is actually a different animal. And, and I think today that commercial arbitration is so much more mainstream than what it was 50 or 60 or 70 years ago, I think the, the vocabulary that we use must be such as to actually effectively describe that and, and transmit that message. So that is what I really try to, to explain, especially to those who are uninitiated, regardless of whether they have a legal background or not, but specifically for those who are within, um, within our field, within the legal field, in-house or otherwise, because if they don't know about arbitration, they will certainly have, know what litigation is. And if they know what litigation is, they will probably have a sense of what international or you know, cross-border litigation looks like. So that is where you have that sort of like one minute, 30 seconds to a minute to actually explain how 
arbitration is not just private, private, you know, the private judge, but something a little bit different than that Milstrom judge. Um, that's how I try to approach it, at least I think. Well, I, I think that that's a very uh, astute way to do so. And, and maybe even for the people that are initiated, that are a little bit more savvy, our duty as those that are participants in this field in talking with those folks is to make sure that we don't bring all the tools and all the trappings of litigation to try and make arbitration private court in quotes. I did air quotes. This is a radio show. But this is, a, you know, um, uh, for, for the folks listening at home so that we don't make the two things the same. And I think that's a little bit of the onus is on us, those of us that are in this field, to keep our house clean. Fully agree again, and especially in international arbitration, right? Because, you know, we this is a field or a practice where, yes, local concepts still may bear some significance, but at the same time, you it's it's that door, that wide door that I mentioned at the, at the beginning of our chat, where that's kind of like magically opens, and then you realize that there's this different plateau where the rules rules of the game is still, well, the game is still very familiar, but the rules were actually, are actually are simpler. And therefore, I think the one thing that really stands out is how to balance that efficiency slash flexibility together with certainty when you are on the procedural front. And then, of course, how to really move forward and make a compelling case of the other, which is maybe more similar to tra more traditional forms of litigation, right? Although, again, not necessarily the same because it's done in such a different way. Well, no, I, I think that's right. Um, and look, it, there's certainly some things, uh, both fields, both practices, arbitration and litigation can learn and be improved and sort of evolve in parallel. But that must would be what it always is. Parallel, not trying to make one the other and trying to blur those lines. Otherwise, I think both use then lose their utility. Fully agree with you. I fully, fully agree with you. Um, well, look, and, and staying right here on the topic of international arbitration, I, I wonder, we, look, I, you and I are finding ourselves, I think, at a, and maybe one of the gaps between being at a conference or one of the many arbitration events that exist around the globe. Um, what, and there are a bunch of topics that are talked about at each of those conferences. Um, there's a lot of overlap, but I wonder, is there anything that comes to mind when you think about a topic that's not being addressed in international arbitration? Is there anything that comes to mind for you, something you wish was talked about more? Um, not at the top of my head. And I think the reason for that is because sometimes we just feel a little bit within that small box that we've all built about, okay, what signing up for this conference is this talk and kind of like, what do I expect to hear? And then it's there, you know, it's kind of like that, that that's probably quite psychological, but I can't really think of something off the top of my head. I think the problem sometimes that we face is that, um, and I'll, I'll tell well, let me back, uh, backtrack a bit. Here at the ICC, when we're building one of our, sort of like our flagship conference programs, we try really not to be looking at what, we actually don't look at what others are doing. We go into the literature, we look at sort of like doctrinal case law developments and the jurisdictions at hand, of course, we have the very good fortune of being able to interact quite openly with a number of different stakeholders, from arbitrators to secretaries to, uh, you know, in-house counsel to experts. So we hear or we witness or sometimes we are told of things coming or things that are already here that we may not have really picked up yet um, in, a, in a much more natural way uh, than, than just seeing what others are doing. 
Um, one of the things that I was really happy for, I'll give you an example of something that we picked up maybe a couple of years ago, three years ago, was agribusiness and the use of our, the emerging use of agribusiness and arbitration. Sorry, of arbitration in agribusiness rather. And um, although maybe the other way around might actually be quite interesting as well. Who knows? Um, and, and that really is something that started from Latin America. I mean, or at least our focus was on Latin America and then progressively might expand also to, to other regions of the world. And that's really looking in different industries and, and their specific needs. Um, I mean, that, that will be one. I can always talk to you about different things that I, I feel um, strongly about, but I'm not necessarily sure that they wouldn't make the best material for a conference that everyone would like. But I'm also thinking about um, the way that arbitration, uh, arbitral institutions get organized and their governance and uh, transparency in their operations. Uh, what I feel very strongly about right now, and so probably we need to talk about at some point is, you know, how we report, whether we have a duty to report to, you know, a duty towards our community to report on um, our activities and even further so to do that in a uniform manner by following certain basic standards so that all of our tales uh, can actually come together as one, you know. Uh, but again, I don't know if that's that's more so like market driven considerations than, I don't know, topics that necessarily people would pay to listen to at a conference, but maybe maybe you'll tell me otherwise. Well, look, um, I, I don't have the data on that, but I, I will say, <laughs> speaking speaking to that point in particular, Alex, like this idea that there are some some of the usual suspects, so to speak, of, of regularly used arbitral institutions that are doing a lot of the work, um, getting used by us uh, clients or, or, or users of arbitration quite a bit. Um, and they look at the data, and what, what is a little bit vexing sometimes is that there's not sort of uniform definitions. Uh, you know, one example I'll talk about is, is diversity. Um, and for as much diversity as there is in the term diversity, or a variance <laughs> um, in that term, there's also a lot of different meanings in the metrics that are taken by the different institutions. And that sort of makes it hard to understand well, is progress being made? What does that progress look like? All those types of things. Well, that's that's really it, Chris. And not just on diversity metrics, which I think require the input from uh, the institutional input in order for that to have to, to become more clear. Why? Well, again, I don't want to focus on diversity or to start with diversity, but since you mentioned it, I think the reason why this is becoming so important is because there is so much less that reporting that is being done by other sources outside of institutions. So, for instance, if you look at the pledge, uh, the, um, the pledge, which is on, on gender, of course, the first one that really caught much traction, um, there are, for signatories, recommended reporting um, standards that should come from institutions, which we do, but also from law firms, which I think we're not necessarily seeing. Um, guidelines with regard to how to set up panels at conferences and different events. I'm not really sure that we're actually seeing that. So again, the, I think even within that small universe, institutions need to do a bit more uh, because it's not just gender, uh, it's also geographical and um, intergenerational or generational representation, a number of other things. And this very interesting formula whereby if you prioritize one, 
over the others, the, you know, the picture may end up being quite different from what you intended it to be. And so it becomes an issue of policy ultimately. And if we are in a position to look at that picture through the same lens, not approach it the same way, because each institution, the same way that each company or each law firm may have different considerations and should actually. That's why each of our offerings is, are different. But we should be able to look at the data under the same lens and make sense of them. Now, apply that across very different things. What is an international case? Last year, the ICC had X cases of which, of which 35% were domestic and 65% were international. What does that mean, for instance? Should I not be, to your point about definition, should I not be saying a little bit about what I consider to be an international case outside the context of legal sort of like definitions, if that's really what's needed? Should I not be agreeing or attempting to agree with my colleagues across different institutions on what that and a few other common denominators should look like? So we start speaking really the same language. And then it goes to a number of other things, you know, amounts and disputes or, you know, number of appointments or, I don't know, uh, you know, dates of contracts, things that can actually, again, create rather simply with basic reporting requirements a rather complete or accurate picture at least of what the arbitration landscape would look at any any one period of time you can tell that i feel quite passionately about this <laughs> no i i think it's an important one um you know I'll, I'll pull one quick example from the diversity space because it was a conversation i was having recently with um you know another person of colors an in-house counsel and we we're having this discussion about you know on the one hand having the conversation in an intentional way bringing it up ensures that it's on people's minds and i guess that you know people will be will appear in these contexts and in these conversations but then is there some sort of a an ebb to that flow of conversation to say okay well we've now ticked our box of diversity and you know are we in fact actually moving the needle in a, in a way that is long-term change and not just sort of um box ticking um and i think that there is some merit to that conversation but I don't think that, that means that we don't talk about it at all. I think it has to be a balance of those two things. It's very interesting, and I would agree. And don't you don't you think that that would also apply across different forms of diversity as well? I think Absolutely. probably 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 the one you just mentioned is is a more sensitive one for many reasons, including cultural regions, uh, cultural cultural reasons. It's not just a diversity metric. It's very it's charged. It's quite charged. So. I think it's a very telling example, but I think there are, it would definitely apply across across different types. And you know what I really find fascinating is that for some people, and I, I say this in the in the nicest with the with the with the best of intentions, diversity still does not matter. Um, mm -hmm. They don't in the sense that they don't see it. Not that they take a position of rejection. It's just an invisible mantle. You see, they don't. It's it's as if it's not there, which I find quite um, quite disappointing. Well, well, certainly. I mean, and I, I think you know to to give some some idea of what those folks might be thinking. We all have our blind spots, right? We all have um, you know things that we may miss because maybe it doesn't impact us. Maybe we hadn't considered it. Maybe we have no real reference point. And I think. A bigger narrative takeaway or point from this discussion is that it's always uh, important to be open-minded and to be sensitive to just because you may not be aware of it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist or it doesn't isn't a real thing to someone else or another community.
That's it. And, and you know, so much of what we do in, I think, international arbitration, international business, has a cultural dimension to it. It can be a legal culture. It could be, a, you know, a national and ethnic culture. It can be a number of different, so a number of different parameters that might actually come in. And I think you know it so well yourself, Chris, because you have actually worked and practiced out of quite a few different jurisdictions. So you know that when you sit across someone at the negotiating table, you should take that into account because, well, because that's the kind of work that you do. So you must take that into consideration when you negotiate, when you are performing your contract, um, when you're, you're, you know, you're trying to prepare uh, to, to defend your company uh, against potential risks and liabilities, or actually when you need to press that button and litigate slash arbitrate or whatever it is that you need to do. Uh, the way you select your arbitrators, the way that you expect your arbitrators to actually embrace some of those cultural or be acknowledge and be aware of those cultural differences when they uh, invite you all over for the case management conference and um, need to take into consideration very different things in order to make that case move forward and ultimately uh, render an award. So I think all of these things, and this is one of the big qualifying, in my mind, qualifying differences of the two systems, you know, domestic litigation slash arbitration and international litigation slash arbitration. No, I, I think that, that that's right. And look, I think we could we could continue on this thread uh, the rest of our time together, but I'll, I'll, I'll let that one stop there and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk about a few more things. Um, look, you know, at the, at the top of our conversation today, you mentioned um, some of the different things that you've done, some of the different hats that you've worn. Um, you know, for, for those listening at home and those that are clicking and tuning into our fine show because they see you here, they will be probably expecting you to hear about your time here at the ICC, here at the ICC, at the ICC. And I guess the question that comes to mind for, for me is, you know, you've been at the, the, the organization now for over a decade. When you look back on your time at the ICC, what are some things that stick out in your mind? Um, things that uh, maybe changes or developments or just maybe personal experiences? Wow. Well, there's a lot to say there, and I, I really hope it's interesting. Yeah, yeah five minutes. Go. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try yeah, to be yeah. brief, and then he goes on for 45 minutes. You know. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that I that really blew me away, and it still does, is how substantive and rewarding institutional work is. I think we have definitely moved from a period, an era. Uh, of our practice or our, you know, when, and I think that was definitely the case for a very, very long period of time that said, uh, you're only worth it. You're only worth something if you've actually worked uh, uh, constantly, you've, you've sort of like uh, created your career and maintain a career only within a big law firm. Um, and sort of like options from other options from in-house to institutional work to uh, other things were seen as uh, second tier. I think Today, that proposition is completely, completely outdated. And I, for me, sort of like being at the helm of the institution today, I think this is just a remarkable change. And hopefully one that I, together with a few others, managed, managed to actually sustain and bring, bring about. Um, I speak of change, and that really goes, I think, to the core of what we've been doing over the past decade, and probably also much, much Way, way before my arrival. And the fact that the rules themselves of the ICC arbitration rules have been amended now three times, 2012, 17, 2021, 
the fact that practices themselves have kept changing, the fact that our offering and our approach, even in terms of where we offer it from or who is offering it and to whom we are offering it, all of those things are, have changed quite significantly while the core message remains the same. So I think for me, this was sort of the, big, the very big takeaway. Um, I may already be forgetting parts of your question, so feel free to jump in. But on, on a more personal side, I think the, um, the thing that I, I think has made uh, this journey so important is the amazing, and I think in my personal opinion, unparalleled um, opportunity to exchange with experts in this field and to really up the quality of our work because of the expertise that they instill in it. And that applies to everyone who has sat and is sitting and will be sitting uh, long after I'm gone at the ICC courts. Um, those who manage the cases at the Secretariat, those who work on our thought leadership opportunities at the Commission and the Institute, those who take care of our research uh, in-house and external, and so on and so forth. This interaction is something that, of course, you see at law firms, you see elsewhere, but it's really massive. And I, and it requires, of course, availability. You need to be easily approached and, and, and people will come to you. And I think that's definitely a skill that I, I think I've probably developed over time. That's really amazing. And, and I, I, again, unparalleled. And lastly, from, again, on the personal side, I think one experience that I will not forget is the, uh, the sort of the first phase of COVID-19. So roughly from March 2020 to, I would say, June or July. Um, so the first French lockdown and opening up. Um, because that was, a, I feel, a make or break moment for a lot of things. And uh, I know that now, three years after, uh, after that, all of this may sound quite trivial and perhaps even forgotten. But in terms of business continuity, in terms of disruption, in terms of, uh, you know, challenge versus opportunity and so on and so forth, uh, for me, this was an amazing experience. And I really think that as a manager, uh, I learned a lot. Yeah, I mean... You, you, that last point, especially as a manager, um, I mean, I, I imagine you're involved with a number of uh, managerial activities throughout the org. Um, uh, I guess as someone that came into the organization at one point in their career and now has spent, you know, at least a decent chapter of your career there, um, I guess, how do you feel like your professional skill set maybe um, has, has changed? Um, maybe and specifically as you've taken on managerial responsibilities? Well, I mean, like, like most lawyers, I went to law school. I didn't also go to business school, although in hindsight, it would have been good had I done at least a little bit of that as well. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, it's a different thing when you're managing cases. It's a different thing when you're managing a team, managing cases. It's a different thing when you're managing different teams that do that or all of them and then others on top of that. So I think progressively I had to learn this as I went. And I know that this may sound quite romantic or, or sweet, but I really believe it. It was only possible because of hard work and because of support by uh, people who have done it, were doing it, or were discovering it 
along the way and who were very able people. And I think this really speaks to the strengths of this organization, the ICC, and its ability to actually attract excellent talent, both within the ranks of the Secretariat of the Court and the wider department that I lead, or also as externals who come and, 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 and so like nurture our understanding or enrich our understanding with uh, different actions of the court members and many others. So I really believe in that collaborative approach and that I really believe that when, you know, you're handed lemons, you need to make lemonade or something similar, but on the basis of lemons. So you actually need to do it. And I, I haven't really forgotten my legal skills because I have to practice them every day. Um, this is really a very uh, transversal activity that of the Secretary General of the Court. So, you know, it's it's great and it's still a very, very important learning, um, uh, 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 maybe not curve, but still a very important learning uh, activity that is ongoing for me. Well, that, that's right. And, you know, one of the things that uh, always I sort of, I'll say bristle, I bristle with when folks say, you know, they leave out the second half of the equation that you put forward. You know, absolutely. If you want to achieve a high level of success in any task or any profession, you have to be willing to put in the work, put in a lot of hard work to get there. But let's not forget it's a little bit of timing, of opportunity, of having, you know, mentors, sponsors, influential guides sort of open up uh, those opportunities, those pathways. And I, th I think you would agree with me because I, I mean, without knowing, I sense you probably are like minded. but. This is a very interesting journey. Um, the, prof the professional journey is as it oh, should be as interesting as the other aspects of one's life. And so the same way that you choose your friends, you choose your life partners, so on and so forth, the, the ability to actually work within a team that works well, I'm not saying you need to be best pals with the people you work with, and probably that may not even be a good idea depending on who the people are but you need to be able to work well with those people. Uh, and I really believe in teamwork. And I think the leadership model that we have here at ICC and one that I feel very strongly about is not one where there's a single person coming up front and sort of like portraying themselves as you know, the savior uh, and, and, and sort of like putting everybody else in the shadows. I really believe in a collaborative spirit. And I am so proud of, of, of our team here. I, I think they're remarkable remarkable people no i i think that that's um i think that that's extremely well said and and well look uh the, the time is zipping by so I, I do have one more question i wanted to ask you before we make a, a, a really hard left um and it's a question that i, I imagine is probably going to be uh, the theme of questions i ask a lot of guests this 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 season and that is this ai or machine revolution that we find ourselves in the midst of um you know, we haven't seen, you know, Neo and Morpheus haven't jumped out of the window yet. But, you know, we do get this sort of feeling that there might be some major changes coming from uh, the birth of these AI models and the, the capability of machines. How do you imagine, if, if you have any thoughts on it, that might impact um, our practice or our lives here in international arbitration? Well, I think what's really interesting is that we're always talking about that in the future tense. And I think that's partly wrong, uh, partly right and partly wrong. We already know that there's at least one, maybe two law firms that have developed their own AI tools to actually assist their lawyers with a number of things. And they already have cute names and they draft letters on the spot. 
and those letters appear to be quite good or even spotless and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of that already happening. We already know that there's a lot of companies within the, the legal service industries that are using AI and will be doing that even more. I think I, I, it sounds a bit theoretical or abstract what I'm about to say, Chris, but I'll do it anyway. I think the human mind, at least the uninitiated one, and mine is that uh, in this field, it's, it has difficulties in seeing this change outside the context of a process that we're already familiar with. So we are thinking about, oh, well, maybe AI is going to help me with document production or in drafting. Will that mean that it's going to take away uh, a burden from the arbitrators in summarizing the facts of the case? Or will they be able to just take everything that is on, I don't know, LexisNexis and summarize and you know put together a fantastic award that nobody else could actually do before, perhaps. But if we're looking at this from outside our own system, then probably those results will be a lot more far-reaching than we can think of today. Um, but I'm not in a position to say how. Uh, I just find it really interesting that for the first time, I think since um, the invention of the internet, somebody said that this is the most important revolution um, and, and, and disruption that, uh, uh, than, than anything that has come since. So. I tend not to be afraid of these things. I always, I'm quite optimistic with regard to the emergence of tools, especially ones that are so revolutionary. Uh, but as with yeah. everything of this uh, size, I think uh, a change of the size, I think we need to be also a little bit wary of the, of the downside. I think that's absolutely true. I think it's the, the comfort in the unknown um, that we don't know exactly where this might take us, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, the best that we can do is be open to the changes that it does bring and be ready to deal with whatever that may be. What do you think will be the future of the legal profession, for instance? What, are the, what is the future of lawyers? What will a lawyer's practice look like 20 years from now? I think those so, are very hard questions. So I think 20 years from now, I, can, I still imagine a world where there's a ton of human interaction, where that you still have humans that are largely using AI as a tool um, to sort of in the same system that you've been talking about. I don't think the system breaks at that point within the next 20 years. 50 years out, 75 years out, um, in particular for arbitration, I just think at some point you will have uh, maybe an AI machine model that is able to do what arbitrators do um, faster. It's such a, it's such a, it's such a speed and with such levels of accuracy to what the humans do that the businesses, the clients, the users start to make the calculation that even if it's not exactly the same thing as what a human does, um, it, it probably is close enough that we're willing to make a decision based on how our predictive model estimates this is going to go and, um, and and go with that. And some of those things might be the awards that we're dealing with and talking with today. I can see that happening in 50 to 75 years, not 20. I think 20 is not enough time <laughs> for the legal and business community to really accept those changes. But I think as time goes, I think it's hard to make the argument to continue doing things in a way that's similar to what we're doing now. Well, uh, I, th I hope we'll both be alive. I think we will both be alive in 20 years time to see and maybe we can actually have a, a catch up yeah, on this specific issue uh, at that point. Well, then, you know, the AI, AI, Chris, will be running the show by then and, uh, you know, Robo interviewing Robo Alex or something, you know. <laughs> um, but listen, um, so look, as we come into the, you know, the 
the, the back portion of our time together. Um, and, and you kind of touched on this or alluded to it in one of your earlier answers. Um, who have been uh, either some of the guiding figures or in your in your career, or maybe just um, influences or, or forces, maybe whether it's a book or an experience or anything like that, anything that um, sort of guided your path? Good question, again. Um, I think there were certain people who were quite pivotal in, in, in trying to, in the, in the sense that they kind of like opened my horizons in a very short period of time. Um, I, and there's many of them. There's been many. And I think not all of them are necessarily well-established names or uh, well-established names of the time. Um, and also some, some of them may not be at all, uh, well, your audience may actually not be at all familiar with. So I will not be um, uh, reciting names. Um, but I do think that as a, a, you know, a student, and not necessarily always a student that is a top A student, straight A student, but anyone who's actually interested in a field or is curious about something, should actually be reaching out and getting as much information about the things that one that that person wants to do from as many sources as possible. And that is sort of like what I did. Uh, at some point in my studies, I was a little bit stranded. I wasn't really sure what it is that I wanted to do. I was a little bit torn. There were certain things, especially at the school where I was uh, being taught law. Uh, there was a lot of um, um, it, it sort of like gearing towards um, court litigation, uh, which I wasn't necessarily enthused with. I mean, I did it and I'm very glad that I ultimately did that. And I practiced that for a bit because there's just so much experience that goes in that that's so helpful later on. And I'm glad I did it and then I moved forward uh, away from that. But again, having people who will be able to understand you and give you um, good advice at the time that you need it is probably what counted the most for me. Um, I don't know if this is really the answer that you expected, but I'm not in a position. I think it's better that I don't give names because then it becomes like a slightly different thing. It's like, oh, he was influenced by X or Y, or he called Z his or her uh, mentor, you know, something like that. And then it's it's really about the process rather than the people, I think. Well, look, no, I mean, it's intentionally asked that way for folks to take it in whatever direction they want. So, you <laughs> okay. know, I mean, you could have just as easily have said Michael Jackson. I mean, who knows, you know? You know, we can make a change. That's true. <laughs> it could have been Michael Jackson, but it wasn't. It wasn't, though. No. That's fair enough. So now people just have to, if they want to know specific <laughs> answers, they'll have to get the the post episode or talk to you directly. <laughs> no. Uh, um, listen, I digest, I digest. Um, listen, why don't we stay with music for a second? Um, what kind of music are you into? So I'm a, a bit of a geek with classical music and mostly opera. And that's Italian opera of the 19th century, so very specific. Um, I like singing. Okay. Uh, well, basically everyone who comes from the Neapolitan school. So, well, anyway, it, it would be the, the, the Bellinis, the Donizetti's, the Rossini's. And the, I mean, my, my favorite, my favorite composer is Verdi. I mean, that man wrote about everything there is to say about the human spirit. And, um, you know, it, it's just amazing. Uh, but then, you know, on lighter, on the lighter side, I love pop music. I grew up in a house that was full of music, popular music, uh, Latin music, Mexican music, uh, all sorts of different things. Um, and I, I really like to celebrate music in all its kind. 
in all its forms. Not a big fan of metal or trap or something like that, but I think other than that, everything else is very much is very much work. And I think you started to say you sing, you sing. I do, yeah, but but completely, you know, in private. Mm, completely private. Okay. All right. More yeah. for the yeah, more for the the background. You I, know, will, folks have I to... will say, and I know that you haven't been able to come yet, that together with two uh, two colleagues uh, here in Paris, we uh, established karaoke arbitration. Um, mm. I'm sort of like the third wheel here because I think it's really their their little baby, and I'm I'm, I'm helping, and I was glad to. And so glad to assist. But we have had amazing karaoke nights, um, both in Paris and abroad. And uh, that really helped me feel sort of like shake off my um, fear of singing publicly. Yeah, look, um, I, I, I embrace that I have just enough musicality to kind of harmonize a little bit, but over under, not like a talented, not winning any singing contest, but it's the spirit, the passion sometimes, as long as you're not hurting That's anybody. It. That is it, Chris. Anyone can sing. I believe that. And it's really not about the rules or how it, it's really about the way that one can express oneself. And then, you know, with a little effort, it actually sounds very good. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, not everyone can be Adele, but, you know, it's. Exactly. <laughs> we, and we everyone can be Adele. <laughs> That's it. Um, how about books? What's on your bookshelf? What are you, what are you reading these days? Um, well, I'm kind of like I, 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 I just finished a book that I absolutely loved, and that's called Who Owns History? Uh, and again, I'm always I'm, I'm not too much into fiction nowadays. I, I very much enjoy biographies, autobiographies, historical books, and of course, a number of other, a number of things. But this book was written by one of the barristers who uh, was advising or was invited to advise the Greek government few years back on the potential return of the uh, Parthenon, the Parthenon marble, marbles. And this book is, it takes that as a starting point, but really speaks about what is the, the identity of a nation and how um, artifacts or specific pieces of, um, you, know, of, of, of you know, art are associated with the very core of what a certain culture is and there's many other examples from around the world and and the fact that this book is written by a lawyer but in a very popularized way made this quite uh, quite intriguing for me and i read it uh, almost almost within two days it was really great i have my country member as with many other things with many other persons and i'm so bad with names uh, but it is called who owns uh, history Fantastic. We'll look, we'll look that up and we'll put it in the show notes. Um, I'm, I'm keen to, to check that out. Yeah. yeah. Um, this, I'm not getting paid for this. <laughs> nah. <laughs> it's fair enough. It's fair enough. Well, um, listen, uh, one of the things that you mentioned in one of your earlier answers, we, we made some Harry Potter references, and I think it's a good time to note. Uh, I guess listeners of the show may know this already. I am certainly a Gryffindor, Gryffindor house. Um, which, which house do you belong to, if you know? Well, I think I would either be a Gryffindor or a Slytherin. Yeah, nothing that's in between. Yeah, yeah it, I think nothing in between. I think there's this 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 qualities in both houses that I mean, watching the movies you wouldn't necessarily see, but reading the books you would. I think. Absolutely, I know exactly what you mean. And when you know what, for the listeners, we're gonna leave it right there. If you want to know more, read the books. <laughs> <laughs> um, listen, we're coming to our last couple of questions uh, in our time together, Alex. Um, let's say you were approached by a, a current student, recent grad, or someone looking to break into the field. 
Um, what advice would you give them uh, to prepare them or help them do that? I can only uh, continue along the path that I, I started with what I said about the people who influenced me. I think you need to make ultimately make, start making a splash or allow people to recognize you, catch their attention. And to do that, you need to know why it is that you want to do what you want to do um, or, or convince them that you're genuinely confused and you really need their help in that. If you know that and you are starting to build a network, then you are you must make a small splash, which means prepare before you speak, prepare before you write, uh, make good impressions, try to um, try to I mean try to network even more than before, I think, and the right way, you know, be respectful of people and their time, um, but be open in your communication with them at the same time, regardless of whether you're doing this at a conference or a networking event or by email or in the hearing room. And, you know, I really believe that ultimately there is, I mean, there's work out there, not necessarily for everyone who's showing an interest today. Unfortunately, there's that demand and offer ratio that is not always, that sometimes is a little bit unforgiving. But I, the, the people will be given a break. I think, you know, you might, one must persist and, again, know why they're doing it because this is not a joyride always. Um, and I think one needs to always keep that in mind. Absolutely. No, I think that's great advice. I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> that's well said. Um, let's say that it's, it's, it's 5 p.m. on a Friday. Um, you don't have anything else on the docket. Um, clear, can do whatever you want. Matter of fact, you can snap your fingers, be wherever you want, whatever you want to do. Um, how do you spend your ideal weekend? Well, Friday compared to Saturday compared to Sunday are very different things. You got uh, the whole weekend ahead of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, if, if I'm finishing work early on a Friday, which is really not the case, I always like to have um, a drink with anyone who's in the office or to go out to one of the pubs or, or, or like bars around here and sort of like unwind a little bit. Uh, I think it's great. And sometimes it actually lasts for a while. So one needs to be careful with that. Um, but my, you know, I love being, I love my work and I love being surrounded by people and interacting with people all the time. And I do that, as you know, quite a bit on the road as well. So when I am home or when, you know, I'm back with family or with very good friends, I tend to actually not do too much. I love, um, catching up with the people that matter the most. Uh, I sometimes enjoy being alone and in silence and reading my book. I love cooking for my friends. I love chatting with my friends. I like taking long walks and you know running in park right next to my house. Um, and then if it's if I have more time, I will definitely take you know the Eurostar and go up to London or Brussels and meet a few friends or go elsewhere in France, or maybe even just take the plane and go down to Athens and um, and hang with hang with my pals. The Greeks, yes, got it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds like, a, that's, those all sound like fine plans and fine things that, that, that one could fill their time with. Well, um, look, uh, one more question before we get out of here, uh, Alex, and um, I hope it's the easiest question to ask you. Um, do you have, uh, for the folks listening at home, any shout outs, any tips at the cap you want to give before we get out of here? A tips about, sorry? Uh, sorry, a tip of the cap or just any shout outs or hellos you want to give to folks listening at home? Well, um, 
not really sorry chris i don't know what to say <laughs> No, I'll tell you what, Alex, um, I will give a couple of shout outs um, to another uh, other friends of the show from the ICC that have been on Tales of the oh, Tribunal yes. to, to uh, Claudia Solomon, Diamana, Diawara, and um, of course, uh, the guy, Mike McElrath, who used to have a podcast, too. But, um, you know, I've heard about him. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I even I, have I, to bring him up, you know, some guy, you know, <laughs> I've heard about him, but I'm not really sure who he is, really. Yeah, yeah. I think he lives in uh, Milan or something. Yeah. Yeah, Milan. I think that's it. Or maybe it's Trieste. I, I really don't remember. <laughs> that's well said. Well, look, um, Alex, look, the time has gone by uh, always as it does too quickly. Thank you so much for stopping by the show. It's been my pleasure. My God, time has flown by. All right. Well, Alex, look, it's been an absolute pleasure having you. We'll have to have you back another time. Do you want to sign us off? With pleasure, I am Alex Fasas, and there's no disputing it. You are listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you, and we will see y'all next time. What did I tell you? Great episode, right? Fun, engaging, informative. I gotta say, I think this episode was one of the most interesting episodes we've done on the show, and I don't think it's just because of me. Alex is just a pleasure to have in the studio, and we'll definitely have to have him back again sometime. Tales of the Tribunal is produced by Mobetta Solutions. Show music is by Joshua and Janet Campbell. I think that does it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening, and I really appreciate each and every one of you for tuning in. It makes all that we do here really worth it, and it makes all the difference. So, until next time, there's no dispute again. You're listening to... Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.